Welcome to the Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we discussed the growing corporate takeover of sports, learned why the poor lose in every election, and chewed over the meaning of work. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for November 16th, 2018. Chuck Mertz spoke to author and journalist Andrew Dobbs about the midterm elections. Dobbs argues that the past elections are really an argument between two factions of the bourgeoisie, leaving the poor and the working class out of the equation. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. You vote because they cannot, and you represent their concerns when you go to the ballot box protecting the marginalized and the poor from the rich and powerful. At least that's what you hope you're doing. But in ways you may not yet know, you may not be doing anybody any good by voting. Here to explain, activist, organizer, and writer Andrew Dobbs posted an article at Medium headlined, No, Voting Democrat is Not Harm Reduction. Welcome to This is Hell, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Andrew is a regular writer at Medium, and you can find his writing there at medium.com slash, and then the at sign, Andrew Dobbs. And you can follow him on Twitter at Andrew Dobbs TX. And you can also support Andrew's work at Patreon at patreon.com slash Andrew Dobbs. I want to talk about an article you wrote back in August, just at the beginning here, just a little bit. You had an article headlined, uh, Nationalists, Technocrats, and Urbanists, A Theory of Today's Politics. In it, you write, U.S. politics is experiencing the final consolidation of a major realignment. On one side are the nationalists, dominant now in the Republican Party. On the other side are the technocrats at the head of the Democratic Party. One is centered in rural and exurban areas and in regions dependent upon extraction and industry. The other is focused in cities where finance, technology, technology, cultural production, education, and government dominate. To what extent did you see that not only during the most recent political campaign, but on election night 2018 as well? How much did you see your argument reinforced by this election campaign as well as election night? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it was heavily reinforced. Where I really see this actually is in that kind of relentless you got to vote, you got to vote, you got to vote. How dare you say don't vote? How dare you argue that the Democrats aren't, you know, objectively and supremely better than the Republican Party that you're hearing from a lot of people on the liberal side of the argument, especially like the kind of liberal left. And the reason that they're making that argument is because for them, the Democratic Party is better. And it's better because it serves their class interests, right? Um, and so I think that you've seen this argument being made repeatedly because, you know, from an objective standpoint, from a subjective standpoint of these people's perspective, you know, the Democratic Party is going to serve their interests for the next few years. It's going to do a lot of things to try and uh, reinforce the kind of neoliberal corporate order that uh, has benefited those fractions of the ruling class. And it will kind of push back against some of the, the advances that the other side has made in the last couple of years. But this is an internal debate within the bourgeoisie. It is not something that actually has any meaningful benefit for working people or the poor. Those people keep getting you know, harmed over and over again. I think the other big thing here is that what both sides of that class divide have in common is a commitment and an investment in U.S. imperialism. Um, and imperialism is not just a choice of policy. It is a, a necessary set of imperatives that are imposed upon us by this stage of our economic and social development. And so they, because they are both pursuing that, they are both tied to that system. 
And there was almost no debate on that whatsoever that I heard. You know, I didn't hear any Democrats saying, hey, let's cut the military budget. Let's withdraw forces from overseas. Let's, you know, rectify, you know, the wrongs that we've committed here. So I think that, you know, I think that the arguments that I make in that piece in August were absolutely reinforced. The final thing I'll say here is that one of the arguments that I make in that in that piece that's sort of prompted by a lot of my personal activism and personal political exposure here in the city of Austin, Texas, where I live, um, it has to do with the way that this urbanist argument was, has been put forward, this idea that, you know, what we really need to do in order to make everything more affordable is, you know, just increase supply of housing. We need to get rid of any kind of, you know, land use regulation and, you know, scrape everything and build high rises as far as the eye can see, and it'll solve all of our problems. You know, this, this kind of argument really won the day in a lot of places. I feel like in California, you saw the defeat of Prop 10, which would have restored a lot of local rights to impose rent control. And, you know, even here in Texas, where you had uh, Robert, quote-unquote, Beto O'Rourke as a Democratic nominee that had some sort of national, you know, presence and in- source of inspiration, you know, this guy's background is one of supporting you know, aggressive gentrification against working class communities. So I feel like the the Democratic side definitely consolidated that idea within its ranks. And I think that that if anything else, if nothing else, that was really harmful to working and poor people. So when you see on election night MSNBC cheerleading for Beto O'Rourke, what does that reveal to you about MSNBC? They always try to package themselves as a progressive station. What does the kind of support that they were showing for Beto O'Rourke reveal to you about a, a media outlet like MSNBC? Yeah, I mean, I think that it represents that he, that they support the same kind of wing of the ruling class or of the kind of middle classes that that that, that O'Rourke did, which is you know the kind of educated cultural production, technological production, you know, socially, you know, more liberal, um, but still, quote-unquote, fiscally conservative kind of end of things, as well as uh, the the real investment in this kind of urban vision of, you know, of redevelopment and whatnot. I think that, you know, and then also the kind of uh, complete disregard for any critique of U.S. imperialism, of even a lot of the other things that, like, I mean, I never really heard him go after the oil industry, which is, you know, our dominant industry in the state, because he knew he was going to lose. So it's that kind of uh, performative thing that kind of uh, focused on the more cultural and social end of things and not really getting at the heart of why is it that people are exploited and poor in this country? Why is it that the world is the way that it is? And what can we do to change it? You know, there's there's a, a sense of how can we make people feel good about themselves without challenging their investment in a system of investment. And you're right that in cities across the country, urbanists have hijacked discussions about affordable housing so that even self-identified leftists believe it to be something other than what it is, a power grab for the ruling class. Why don't self-identified leftists recognize it as a power grab for the ruling class? Well, I think that it goes back to the fact that most self-identified leftists in the United States tend to be uh, part of the middle class in one way or the other. If you look at what their actual class position is, what their actual position in production is, you know, a lot of them work for non-governmental organizations of one sort or another, right? Um, They work in academia. They often, maybe they do work in the private sector, in the for-profit sector, but they work in something technological or cultural in production, right? 
And so they don't necessarily really want to challenge the fundamental uh, system of, of U.S. capitalism. Furthermore, all of us, including many sectors of the U.S. working class, benefit from imperialism. You know, we extract tremendous amounts of wealth from the developing world and bring it back to this country and then distribute it in various ways across the population. And so when people don't necessarily really want to challenge that. And, you know, really, the urbanist argument is an imperialist capitalist one at its heart. And so they want to try and find ways of splitting the difference, and they will adopt that. The final thing, I think, is a kind of uh, political economic ignorance. You know, excuse me, you'll hear uh, them say things like, in fact, I've heard political figures here in Austin say, well, it's economics 101, that, you know, supply and demand are here. And it's like, yeah, there is economics 101 where you're talking about supply and demand. There's also economics 201 and 301 and 401 and a lot of classes past 101. And there's economic forces at play that you may not address with that, but they rely upon people kind of relying upon that ninth grade education in economics rather than people having spent the time to critically educate themselves on the actual forces at play. The last thing I'll make on that is that a, a problem that we see on the so-called left or on the actual left that runs as a thread throughout all these arguments that we're talking about today is the era of economism, right? Which is the idea that everything would be boiled down to economic forces or that quantitative changes or quantitative factors are determining determinative of these things. When in truth, really, there's some qualitative arguments at play here. And it's not just dollars and cents and economic forces at play. When it comes to housing, it's not that if we build a bunch more housing, then suddenly we're going to see rents drop. The reason that rents are going up isn't because of a lack of supply. The reason that rents are going up is because landlords raise rents because that's how they make their money. So if we want to see rents go down, we need to undermine or reduce the power of the landlord class in our housing sector. And that's what we really need to do. And everything else that we're debating about whether or not we should build this or that or the other is really secondary. In fact, it benefits them and it makes things worse over time because they're going to be able to keep raising the rents because they're going to maintain the power that they have now. Nancy Clem spoke to Aaron Caffel about the deep roots of the working class and the agrarian lifestyle. Caffel, a specialist in glaciers and extinction events, talked about the seductive power of spaces, the meaning of work, and the power of place. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second Sunday of every month at 5 p.m. So Aaron uh, and I were talking about uh, the Costanura Sur, which is a large urban ecological reserve in Buenos Aires, right in the city, that has a very complicated history. I think that that narrative, I mean, that's, that's part of what I was writing about in this, this essay that you're referencing, which is still still unpublished, but, um, you know, for me, working through that essay was really important because I think as a person who writes about nature, um, that's a question I get asked all the time by people who know what I do or read a piece that I've written or see the film, you know, what, 
what can you give me that will give me hope? And what is it that you can tell me that I can go do with an action, with a strategy, a purchase even, something that I can do that's going to make me hope and bring hope <laughs> to what feels like a hopeless process. But I think that's wrapped up in this very binary, you know, Western culture inculcated way of thinking about whether something is, is okay, is acceptable, is good enough. Um, I, had a, I had a boyfriend in college who is now a glaciologist, oddly enough, um, uh, who basically taught me how to camp and hike and, and gave me a, a much different version of, of experiencing the natural world and a greater appetite for it. So he, he gave me an enormous amount. Um, but he went to National Outdoor Leadership School while we were dating, and, and one of the things that we got into arguments about when he came back was the process they have, which is you know when they find a place that is that looks like humans haven't touched it, that's on the trail in the backcountry, you can't go into it. You are not allowed to, to disturb places that don't look like they've been disturbed. And you know you have to try to return the, the, the space back to as pristine a version of the wilderness as you possibly can. And I, I understand the the impulse behind that, and I don't think it's a bad impulse. Um, and I don't even think it's a bad policy for those people who are experiencing wilderness for the first time, but I think that there's a, there's a bifurcation that goes on when you ask people to think that way about the natural world. That is very dangerous, and that is that there is a saved place and a ruined place, and uh-huh. that you get to choose what you're going to do with the saved place. Um, it has to be pristine. It has to be beautiful. It has to be separated from your daily life. And the ruined place, you can just keep ruining because we already have... Um, our fingerprints all over it, and I think that the more that you tell people that that those those binaries, and now I'm showing my <laughs> my early training in critical theory in, in English departments in the '90s, but um, you know, more that you the more that you ask people to to blow past those binaries and think in those interstitial spaces where it isn't healed or sick, it's it's in process, it's in the middle of healing, or it's just being alive, which involves both both your end is wrapped up in your body, your end is wrapped up in the place, but so is the rebirth, so is the beginning of something. Mm-hmm. And the more that you allow conversations about the natural world to to take those things in and to not just look at a landscape and say, well, this is a pristine place that we have to protect. It's, it's there, there's no one's ever been here. That, that erases all of the histories and the first peoples that were there and mm-hmm. the way that land has been used. And the more that you invite in the complexity of... Um, of the history of the place, of the of impacts of um, decisions that are made far away from it on whether that place really is healthy or not, the more you make room for disruptive, exciting, novel ways that we can protect vulnerable spaces and rebuild them. And I think that's, for me, where I end up feeling hope, is that hope isn't sort of this one-size-fits-all, one-solution experience where you pick a thing and that fixes it. Well, you pick a place, and it gets to be reborn, and the place next door does not. That hope is in this incredible complexity of what happens with seeds and ideas and you know, giving places time and giving them and the people who know them respect. Um, because it allows for the multiplicity of narratives about a place. That includes the people who live there and the people whose ancestral lands they were and people who are disenfranchised by being moved off of space, like the people who were camping in those interstitial areas you're talking about in, in Chicago. 
Right. You know, it allows for the complex messiness of milkweed plants on the verge of Lakeshore Drive, which a few, you know, I want to say maybe five years ago, there was a big move where all the mowers came and took down all the milkweed that had been growing in these accidental prairie spaces on the sides of Lakeshore Drive, and that disrupts the monarch population. And the monarch population isn't just ours, it belongs to an entire migration route. And <laughs> so, right, know. but we, we, we build monarch gardens for the monarchs, and that's where they're supposed to go. Right, right. And they can't, they can't be along the side of the highway. That's not beautiful enough. <laughs> that's too messy. I mean, I think that's the beauty of the way that the natural world really works to heal itself, is that it does get messy. Oh, the it's body, messy. too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so you, I just, you've spent time on this small island um, called Monhagen. I think mm, I spelled Monhagen, it. Monhagen, yeah. Monhagen, off of uh, 12 miles or so off the coast of Maine. And... Yep. It's a very small population of um, lobster fishermen that live on this island. And I think this is the place where people are living really close to land and how they Mm -hmm. both work in economy, but also build a culture and life in a place. And I actually look at these kinds of communities. When you were telling me about this community, how there was really... um, Hopeful because I did understand. <laughs> they did understand um, their small landmass, um, mm-hmm. what they have been doing for generations, and what they do really well, and how it's mm-hmm. being affected by climate changes, and and you know how their economies are also f- affected by uh, whatever markets they take their lobsters to. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the hope you see in these small um, working class communities that live in relationship to land that wouldn't yeah. call themselves environmentalists or um, yeah. or might but might might put a lot of caveats around that um, right. <laughs> yeah and, and I can I can speak from from my experience of money and not as a person who's a resident there but as somebody who's an observer and, and mm-hmm. somebody who grew up in a space very like Monhegan. My parents went you know, back to the land as hippies in the 70s and moved from having been urban dwellers their entire lives to the Berkshires, which is a tourist economy with a long tradition and a deep, deep roots of farming and working class life and mill life. And I grew up as you know, a tourist, the child of people who had emigrated into the space, essentially, um, would, and we were dependent on the tourist economy, and Monhegan functions a lot like that. Mm. There's a robust tourist economy. There are, um, there are lots of people who come for summer living there that own cottages. There are hotels there. Um, there's a, an upswelling of the population every summer, but during the winter, there's 65 residents there. 65 people. Years ago. Was <laughs> 65 people. Most of whom, um, most of the families that have been there for a long time are lobster families. Some of the people who own businesses on the island and have made their way. There's a, there's a yoga instructor with a wellness studio there, too. There's there's a, a diversity of folks who live there, um, but one of the, the things that I found really interesting about observing this island, I first went there when I was 14. My mother's family had some some roots in that part of coastal Maine, and uh, and I saw it for the first time. It's also an artist colony. It's some place where the Wyeths spent time, where Rockwell Kent had a house. Um, it's also one of the oldest land trusts in the country because... Um, Tom Adalva Edison's son fell in love with it and bought up a ton of what were going to be vacation cottage plots 
uh, in, in the 50s and started, started this land trust, um, 30s, 50s. So it's a really complex place. But mm-hmm. there are some things that I feel like they're doing right there. And, and so inspiring to me because it's an incredibly vulnerable place. There's no cars on the island. It is 12 miles off the coast. The ferry only runs a little bit in the winter. Um, it is dependent on tourism. But they've got the private land trust to pr- protect these wildlands that aren't significant enough to have been a national or a state park. And they've, they've figured out a way to protect, protect two-thirds of the island landmass, essentially, for, for wild space. Um, they've figured out how to keep their water needs met for the most part because they've got an aquifer on the island. There's a big push to bring in um, alternative power options for the residents, solar solar power especially. Um, there's a push to create sustainable agriculture on the island so that there's, um, there's a farm structure and less of the food needs to be imported to the island. Um, and I think also really importantly, and this is something that I think falls out of the eye of, of nature writing often, you know, the people who live there who are part of the deep history of it, who do protect the wildlands, who have a relationship with, with the waters there and the economy. Um, there's a fund that's been set up to try and keep housing affordable for people who've got the, um, a, a winter relationship with place and who have mm-hmm. a traditional relationship with place, which I think that is something that happens in a lot of places like this where there's a huge amount of beauty and the economy turns towards taking that beauty away from working class families and handing it to people who can afford to pay elevated housing prices and elevated tax costs. And they've really been thoughtful about saying, no, the, the value of our community is that we have all kinds of people here who, and people who have a stake here and a real ownership of the place that goes back beyond doing something like what I did, which was coming to the island as a stranger and just being like, this is gorgeous. I want to have some of this in my life. Like I recognize that I'm not of that place, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people do, but what do we do for the people who are of the place, and how do we recognize the integral nature of their relationship to the land as, as part of what protects the land, as part of what prepares an island out in the middle of, of the Atlantic on the Gulf of Maine, which is warming faster than any other part of the Atlantic Ocean? Um, how, do we, how do we support the folks who have a real long-term relationship with that land? and that home place to be able to be the stewards and the protectors of it over time. Because that's, that's the kind of thing that we're going to need to recognize as the world changes, is that people with the long memories of place who are vulnerable economically often can't affect the protections that they know are necessary for their homes because they're economically disadvantaged and we have to figure out how to create possibility that those those lives that are led close to land are able to be still led close to land, even though economic pressures would, would remove them and replace them with someone who can afford the summer home. Right. And how's the lobster fishing going? Where is that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what happens to the lobster fishing when, as the Gulf warms and as, you know, the ecosystem. So for me, again, talking about this sort of spiral relationship to writing about it, particular place, like if you start at the surface and you start at the level of, of that community and that place, how do you, as you're going through the question of what's happening to the lobster fishery and the people affected by it, if you go deeper into, well, really, then it's a story about eelgrass. And if it's a story about eelgrass, it's also a story about green crabs. And if it's a story about green crabs, then it's also a story about the warming water. And if it's a story about that. So I think I mean, there isn't a part of that entire story where 
there is an interconnectedness and, um, and the complexity of that. And I think that makes people sometimes want to turn away from the story because the complexity feels overwhelming. But I think that's the beauty of it, it's, is sort of revealing to folks where their agency lies in that complexity. Size matters, size matters. Smith, Kyle, Seisman, Kowski. Kyle, oh, like your life depends on it. It's frozen, Kyle. It's frozen solid, Kyle. That's... Uh, we'll just have to slide our way there. Gee. We've uh, got to go back. It's like four degrees. Uh, this you, is, you got no gravel in your guts. This is just stupid yeah, and dangerous. We're helping like the else. environment, you understand? All right, set it up. Come on, uh, We're venturing down Bubbly Creek to 35th Street to do some ice ditching. It's, it's way too cold for this. Ice ditching can only be performed in a deep freeze. Now man up and shove up, please. We're sliding down a frozen river on a mattress strapped to six tires. It's a boat. It's a mattress. Today it's a boat. It's just... Whatever this is, it's it's wrong, man. Stop inside, Petrowski. What? It's a cell phone. Grab it. It looks like one of them smartphones. Yeah, right over there. Okay, got it. Got it. Here. Good. Here you go. I think that was a good time to remind our listeners that whatever we're doing this... It is not safe, and it should only be performed by professionals like us. And mutiny is also punishable by death, FYI. You want to sing songs? So what is ice stitching, and how does it help the environment? I mean, we don't have an auger, a tackle, no rod. That's right. We just have a 10-gallon bucket and a coal shovel and a bike sickle for some reason. Cut the sails, drop the anchor, we've made it. Uh, all right, which one of these is your make-believe anchor? Is it the shovel, the bucket, or the bike? The one with the chain on it, come on. The bike, okay, it's the bike. Take the bucket, Trowski, I got this. Ice stitching is a scavenging technique, and it don't have nothing to do with no fishes, so don't think we're going to be fishing. On the banks of Bubbly it. Creek right here by 35th Street okay, are many hidden gems. These discoveries come in all forms such as the cell phone we just found. There you have it. I'm impressed and actually very relieved that you're so into the revitalization that's going on around here. Is there a website uh, where people can go to help uh, clear debris from the uh, in and around Bubbly Creek? I I mean, it's not really debris so much. What? What? I mean, well, the cell phone is worth something, at least useful. How is that not debris? We, I mean, we only pick up the valuable stuff, like the cell phone. Uh, you see, some people will throw stuff out the cars, like phones, cash, lighters, mixed CDs, suitcases, wallets, little bags of powder, wedding rings, all sorts of things that you could use or sell, you know what I mean? We're garbage picking? Ice ditching. What was that? For a high reward, there's always a high risk, John. That was the creek belching from the ghost sheets of all the slaughtered animals that were dumped here back in the day. Thank goodness it's froze really thick. Kyle! Grab my shovel! Grab my shovel, Kyle! Kyle! Stand up! No, no, just stand up! Get your feet under it, Kyle! Come on! Hey! I'm gonna head back to the co-pro. 
Why don't you use your treasures to call yourself a cab? I'm out of here, man. That'd be nice if it would stay frozen all the time. That way, you see, nothing would sink into the creek. But uh, you gotta do what you gotta do. Back to John Daly and other morons over at What's It Called. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump promises a warlike posture, Jeff Sessions is sacked and replaced with a hack, Matt Whitaker's appointment appears to be unconstitutional, Trump melts down in front of the press, Trump tries to halt recounts as a blue wave crashes over the United States. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 658, November 8th. Jeff Sessions was sacked by Trump one day after the elections. Trump asked for and got Sessions' resignation. He had frequently criticized the Attorney General for not protecting him from the Russian investigation. Trump replaced him with a loyalist and his former Chief of Staff, Matthew Whitaker, will now take charge of the Special Counsel investigation. Whitaker has previously criticized the Mueller investigation. However, Whitaker's appointment appears to be unconstitutional. Whitaker is a so-called principal officer, and as such, he would have to be nominated by the President and confirmed by the Senate under its advise and consent powers. That's in the Constitution, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. Whitaker appears to have a tough confirmation fight ahead. He has repeatedly expressed opinions far outside the judicial mainstream, including an opinion that all federal judges should be Christian, that the courts are supposed to be the inferior branch, and that the Supreme Court should not have the power to review legislative and executive acts and declare them unconstitutional. Whitaker's views are so extreme that they are actually internally inconsistent. Constitutional experts have called them flat-out ignorant. It has also been reported that Whitaker will not recuse himself from overseeing Mueller's probe of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Whitaker will also not approve of any subpoena of Trump. Trump has yet to agree to answer questions from Mueller's team, which is also now preparing its final report. At a bizarre and rambling press conference, Trump threatened Democrats with a warlike response if they launch investigations against him. Trump started out with an olive branch, claiming, quote, we have a much easier path because the Democrats will come to us with a plan for infrastructure, a plan for health care, a plan for whatever they're looking at, and will negotiate. He quickly turned to insulting reporters and then lying about the midterm election results. Trump then suspended the White House press credentials of CNN's Jim Acosta. Acosta refused to give up the microphone and challenged Trump about the migrant caravan heading to the U.S. border. Acosta was subsequently refused access to the White House and was asked to hand over his so-called hard pass. Sarah Huckabee Sanders then falsely claimed that Acosta had placed his hands on a young woman who attempted to seize Acosta's mic. She then tweeted out a doctored video from InfoWars that falsely impugned Acosta. The White House Correspondents Association called the White House's reaction out of line to the reported offense and asked that Acosta's press pass be restored. And a U.S. appeals court ruled that Trump cannot immediately end DACA. A three-judge panel on the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals kept in place a preliminary injunction blocking his attempt to phase out the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. DACA has protected some 700,000 people who were brought to the United States illegally as children. Ruth Bader Ginsburg fell and fractured three ribs. That fall is unlikely to keep the Supreme Court Justice, who is 85, out of work for long. She fractured two ribs earlier in her career and did not miss a day of work. Day 659, November 9th. 
Two days after the midterm elections, major races in Arizona, Florida, and Georgia remain undecided, but it is looking more and more like Democrats pulled off a coup. Elections in Florida and Georgia are now heading to recounts. Kristen Sinema is leading handily in Arizona, and Trump water carrier Dana Rohrabacher was ejected in Sodley Ridge, Orange County, California. Also in Texas, a 27-year-old Democrat and immigrant, Lena Hidalgo, won an upset election to lead Harris County, which includes Houston as the third most populous county in the country and the largest in Texas. She beat the 11-year Republican incumbent, became the first woman and the first Latina elected to that office. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Trump may have broken major campaign finance laws, asserting he was involved in nearly every step of payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. David Pecker offered to use his newspaper, the National Enquirer, to buy the women's silence, eventually paying McDougal $150,000 after Trump asked Pecker to kill her story. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Trump directed deals in phone calls and meetings with Michael Cohen. Cohen also admitted that he arranged the payments at the direction of, quote, a candidate for federal office with the intention of influencing the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. Matthew Whitaker's elevation acting U.S. Attorney General continued to royal waters with Trump backing away from his man, claiming, I don't know Matt Whitaker. In fact, Whitaker and Trump have met at least a dozen times and are said to share an easy rapport. Whitaker, meanwhile, served on the advisory board of a company that built thousands of consumers out of millions of dollars. World Patent Marketing was fined nearly $26 million after the FTC accused it of scamming customers. The FBI is currently investigating WPM, and Whitaker has already been forced to recuse himself. Trump signed a presidential proclamation blocking migrants who crossed the United States illegally from seeking asylum. Those new rules will change a long-standing asylum law that allowed people to seek protection if they don't enter the United States at an official port. And Trump continued to attack individual members of the press, focusing on African Americans and women. Trump said April Ryan from American Urban Radio Networks was a loser who doesn't know what the hell she is doing. Then ripped CNN's Abby Phillip for asking Trump if he wants Whitaker to, quote, reign in Mueller. Trump replied, what a stupid question that is. What a stupid question. You ask a lot of stupid questions. Day 660, November 10th. A federal judge blocked construction of the Keystone XL oil pipeline in a major blow to Trump's energy agenda, saying the Trump administration simply discarded and ignored inconvenient facts about how the project would impact climate change. The judge told Trump the project had to be halted. NPR reports that Christine Blasey Ford continues to be the target of constant harassment and death threats since accusing Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault. Ford has apparently been forced to move four times and has hired a private security detail. She still has not been able to return to her job as a professor at Palo Alto University. And Trump has asked Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to leave. Trump looks to replace him with the World Wrestling Federation executive, Linda McMahon. Trump apparently is sticking by Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, who is currently involved in 66 different ethics inquiries. Zinke, however, has been offered a job at Fox News. Trump falsely claimed that the wildfires raging through California are the result of forest mismanagement. Trump tweeted, quote, there is no reason for these massive, deadly, and costly forest fires in California except that forest management is so poor. Billions of dollars are given each year with so many lives lost, all because of gross mismanagement of the forests. Remedy now or no more Fed payments. In fact, the current wildfires have nothing to do with forest management at all. Trump is apparently deeply depressed as election results have sunk in. In addition, his son, Donald Trump Jr., believes he's about to be indicted by Robert Mueller for perjury. Trump quietly issued a pair of federal rules that would allow some employers to deny insurance coverage for contraception. The rules exceptions on religious or moral grounds strike at another key provision of the Affordable Care Act. That act requires all employers to provide essential health benefits at no charge to consumers, and that includes birth control. 
Day 661, November 11th. Three Florida races are now heading to recounts after balloting significantly tightened. Republican Rick Scott raged against the recount as he saw his lead over incumbent Bill Nelson shrink as more ballots were found uncounted in a mail facility. Andrew Gillum withdrew his concession to Ron DeSantis well in the governor's race. Scott claimed without evidence that there is voter fraud. Trump tweeted that Democrats, quote, are trying to steal two big elections in Florida. We are watching closely. And French President Emmanuel Macron rebuked Trump in Paris on Armistice Day. Macron, with Trump sitting stone-faced, said, quote, patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. By saying our interests first, who cares about the others, we erase what a nation holds dearest, its moral values. Trump subsequently canceled a planned visit to an American cemetery 50 miles outside of Paris. The White House cited rain. No one else was deterred by the weather. The EPA has quietly removed more than 80 climate change websites. Previously, the EPA's climate change site said it was being updated. The EPA has now removed the updating mention as well as links to its own climate change archive. Day 662, November 12th. The chief state judge in Broward County, Florida, told lawyers overseeing a recount to ramp down the rhetoric. Chief Circuit Judge Jack Tudor also refused a request by Governor Rick Scott to order the county police to impound voting machines and ballots. Scott has said without substantiation that there is voter fraud. Earlier in the day, Trump tweeted that the Florida election should be called in favor of Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis and that large numbers of new ballots showed up out of nowhere and many missing ballots are forged. An honest vote count is no longer possible. Ballots massively infected must go with election night. In fact, some ballots from overseas and from military members still have until 7 o'clock this coming Friday night to be counted in that election. Satellite evidence shows that contrary to Trump's claims, North Korea is moving ahead with its ballistic missile program at 16 hidden bases. The images indicate that North Korea has been engaged in a great deception. It is offered to dismantle a major launching site, a step it began and then halted, while continuing to make improvements in more than a dozen others. Adam Schiff said the Intelligence Committee would look into whether Trump tried to use instruments of state power to punish the press in at least two instances. Schiff said the House would investigate whether Trump attempted to jack up postal rates paid by Amazon and whether the president tried to block AT&T's merger with Time Warner. And Trump renewed his attacks on NATO members, alleging the United States pays for large portions of other countries' military protection and then loses money on trade deals with those same countries. Trump has often criticized NATO, despite seeming not to understand how that organization's finances actually work. Day 663, November 13th. Kirsten Sinema scored a groundbreaking victory in the race for a Senate seat in Arizona, becoming the first Democrat to win in that state since 1976. Sinema, who also becomes the first bisexual senator, takes the seat being vacated by Trump critic Jeff Flake. Sinema's victory guarantees the Democrats at least 47 Senate seats. Republicans are guaranteed 51. Two, one in Florida and one in Mississippi, remain undecided. CNN sued Trump on behalf of reporter Jim Acosta, asking a court to restore his White House press pass after Trump suspended it last week. That unusual lawsuit, which is an escalation of Trump's long-standing war against the network, has a strong chance of success. The First Amendment protects journalists against arbitrary restrictions by government officials. A federal judge barred the Georgia Secretary of State from certifying their election results. The deadline for Georgia's 159 counties to certify their results was today, but Amy Totenberg said the Secretary of State could not certify results before Friday. It also must establish and publicize a secure and free access hotline for provisional ballot voters. A number of provisional ballots in Georgia appear to have been discarded without explanation. The former Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, is locked in a close race with Stacey Abrams. Abrams is hoping to force a mandatory runoff. 
Saudi officials close to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman discussed hiring mercenaries to assassinate their enemies one year before Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi was killed. Saudi officials claim that Khashoggi's death was a rogue action. All evidence points, however, to a state-sanctioned hit. Trump attacked France for allegedly wanting to build up a European army. This is a willful misreading of Emmanuel Macron's comments. The French president said no such thing. In fact, Macron said that France should pay more to strengthen NATO, which is what Trump has been demanding all along. However, Trump's tweet said Emmanuel Macron suggests building its own army to protect Europe against the U.S., China, and Russia. But it was Germany in World Wars I and II. How did that work out for France? They were starting to learn German in Paris before the U.S. came along. Pay for NATO or not. France, of course, does have its own army, as well as the Foreign Legion. More to the point, Macron had publicly chided Trump for his nationalism on Armistice Day, publicly embarrassing Trump. Rywin Hack, Jerome Corsi, says he expects to be criminally indicted by Robert Mueller, the special counsel. Corsi, who is close to Trump advisor Roger Stone, said that he'd be soon be charged for some form of lying. He claimed he was the victim of a perjury trap and claimed without evidence he was being persecuted because he dared to support Donald Trump and opposed the deep state. Trump reportedly doesn't want to give federal relief funding to Puerto Rico in the mistaken belief that he's using that money to pay off debts. It is not clear why Trump believes this, but it is untrue. 50% of the Republican legislators who authored the Trump tax cuts are no longer in Congress. Democrats are preparing 85 separate topics for subpoenas against the Trump White House. And Trump's approval ratings continue to crater. Gallup has Trump at a 30% approval rating and a 56% disapproval rating. These are the Trump Diaries. John Daly spoke to Hall of Fame sports writer Jerry Trecker about the growing power of money in sports and how corporate interests have separated teams from their fans. What happens when fans learn that a sporting event is more about the event than the result? Find out with Radio Free Bridgeport every Tuesday, drive time. Sitting across from us uh, in Studio B for the first time, I believe it's the first time you've been in Studio B. First time. It is somebody that you'll recognize. We talked to him by phone, I think, uh, two months ago, was it? And, of course, we talked to you during the World Cup when we had uh, Kyle McCarthy on as well. It is none other than Jerry Trekker. Uh, it is Welcome. Nepotism special of uh, Radio Free Bridgeport here. Uh, but uh, I'm just glad it's not at my expense. It's well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you do have a relative running for mayor. We might, we might have to have, to have that on. But as as people may remember, uh, Jerry Trekker's had a uh, 50 plus year career, maybe closer to 60. Am I right now? 66. 66. Yeah. Wow, uh, career in uh, in broadcasting as well as uh, journalism. He's worked for the Hartford Current. That was the outlet he was most cl- uh, closely tied to. But he worked for Fox Sports. He worked for ESPN. He has covered virtually every sport from horse racing to auto racing to the Olympics to the World Cup. And we're pleased to have him in here today. He's visiting Chicago. We want to talk to him about a subject that's uh, near and dear to his heart. Uh, This is not going to be a sports talk radio show, per se. Uh, Instead, uh, Jerry's here to talk about the growing uh, growth of money in world sport and in American sport in particular, which is something that I know is something that you've covered extensively uh, for at least the last 30 years. I think we're on the verge of a major change in the way sport and uh, entertainment are defined uh, globally. And having watched it develop over the last 20 years, uh, I I think the only surprising thing to me is how quickly the transition is taking place right now. Uh, Europe for a long time lagged behind the United States in commercial opportunities in sports. Uh, Years and years ago when I first went to uh, England and Scotland to cover uh, football there, I I was absolutely stunned by how little 
they understood marketing. Uh, games weren't on the radio. Uh, television coverage was extremely limited. And the thinking seemed to be that uh, the whole sport lived and died on at the box office. I'm not old enough to remember when that's the way it was in baseball, but it had ceased to be that uh, even in the 1960s in baseball. But what we're seeing now, I think, is a total transformation in sport from the game to the entertainment experience and to the profit center that the sport itself has become. If you look at how Major League Baseball merchandises its events and its championships, you have to be struck by the fact that if you're a fan of a team that wins anything, I'll guarantee you the first email you get after the last out of a league championship or a World Series or even a division championship is the wonderful opportunity that you have as a fan to buy the commemorative T-shirt or cap or patch or whatever it is. Even, even before the final score is, uh, is on the wire, you're being offered an opportunity to, to take part as a buyer. If you look at sport as a pure generator of money, it probably ranks unchallenged, I would think, globally as the number one investment opportunity now for the growing number of billionaires and multimillionaires that we see. Because not only does it offer you the opportunity to make a great deal of money if you do it right, it gives you a certain cachet. And I know that when the Glazers bought Manchester United, lots of people in Manchester weren't happy about it. But the Glazers now have a profit center in that club that is so dynamic. And here's the, here's the rub and here's the negative part of it. That it no longer matters what Manchester United does on the field. Paul Pogba, I read, has 43 million Twitter followers, more than the club itself has, which makes him, in effect, untouchable. No matter how he plays, he's more significant to their marketing than the team name itself. That's not good, but it's the way things are moving and I'm not really sure that you can turn it around. Do you now go to a game in the United States, for example, to see the game or to take part in the experience? I was at Shea Stadium on the, the last day that the Mets played a regular season game there. I was with my brother, who had been at Shea Stadium on the first day that the Mets played there. So he was bookending it. And as we stood in the corridor before the game, which was rain-delayed, typical Mets style, uh, can't quite get anything done exactly right, we looked at the crowd and I said to him, what, what do you notice? What's the difference from day one to today? He said, day one, nobody wore a Mets jersey. There were a few Mets caps, but people were not dressed. They weren't a part of the overall team, and that transformation had taken place in, a, in about 50 years. 
I have difficulty sometimes deciding whether this is good or bad. I know it is, uh, but but is it sustainable in the long term? That's that's of concern to me. When I was graduating from college, the three biggest sports events in the United States. Well, I'll ask you, what do you think in in 1962? were the three biggest events on our sports calendar? Well, the Super Bowl really wasn't around then, so I would say the World Series. I'd say the Indy 500 and the Kentucky Derby. Two out of three is not bad. The World Series, definitely. The Indy 500 was a everybody stops and pays attention event, but the biggest event in those days a heavyweight championship I would, boxing match. You know, I was going to go I would have said the Masters. I, I was going I was going to actually go with boxing as well, but I the Kentucky Derby I thought from a uh, a crowd point of view because they they got, you know, 200,000 people down there to see it in, in Louisville, so. And because of Hunter's coverage of it in 1972. Yeah, well, of course he graduated in the early in the early 60s, but no, I I, I Indy 500, you know, that's an interesting point because the Indy 500 did really used to be um, everybody watched the Indy 500. Everybody listened. Yeah. Well, I mean, when it was broadcast. They watched it on tape delay. Yeah, but everybody right. saw it. It was something that, that everybody literally uh, in, in middle America paid attention to. And I, I don't think it's been that way for 20 years. Well, the point I would make is that those three events are nowhere close to being the three most important events in American sports today. Boxing's almost disappeared as a major attention-getting sport. We probably could go out on Morgan Street right now and ask the first 50 people who the world heavyweight champion is and not get the correct answer. We've had a female heavyweight cha- uh, uh, champion in this uh, studio, actually. She's from the neighborhood. Yeah. I, I don't. I wonder if it is it still Klitschko. I don't know who the heavyweight champion is, <laughs> yeah. honestly. And that's, that's surprising. I usually do know that. I think it is still Klitschko. I think he's got the unified WBA and BC bout, but you're right. More people would know who the UFC champion yes. is. Yes. Mixed more martial would. arts is, is certainly more popular than boxing. And the Super Bowl remains the category killer. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, you know, but in in 1962, there was no Super Bowl. Of course, the, right. it was the American Football League had just begun, and even then, the NFL Championship game was not a major stop everything in America event. Yeah, but college football. I mean, Yale Harvard was for people on the East Coast. I don't know if was USC UCLA on the on the West Coast. Uh, it was USC Notre Dame was probably the biggest college football game, and uh, Michigan Ohio State. Okay, yeah, I'm forgetting Notre Dame. I always forget about Notre Dame, probably because they cheated when they played Syracuse. <laughs> only only once. <laughs> yeah, so. No, I mean that's an interesting point. And back to what you were saying about Manchester United, you know Ed Woodward, the chairman over there, has been very good at spinning money for the the Glazier family. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned Pogba because one of the criticisms of that team right now is that obviously they're not, they're first of all, not playing very well. Um, and they have not had recent success. But the team has been put together uh, purely for marketing decisions. Many of the people on that team were chosen because they are uh, global figures that could open the team up to other revenue streams and avenues. And of course, Manchester United is now the most popular team in Asia. Um, the most popular football teams here in the States used to be, by the way, Glasgow Celtic and, and Glasgow Rangers uh, among, you know, expats. And that, that's – I'm dating myself, but this was 60s or 70s probably. Um, a lot of the English teams were not well-known over here uh, comparatively. Um, 
Manchester United, I think you would argue, along with Barcelona and Real Madrid, are probably the one, two, three in, in shirts you see in America, I would argue. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and one of the things that one of the huge problems that MLS faces is that when you do hear American kids talk about soccer or when you see American kids in gear, it's in Barcelona or Real Madrid or Manchester United, and they're talking about Pogba, or they're talking about uh, Mbappe, they're talking about uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, they're not talking about anybody who's playing uh, in MLS. And, and how that league overcomes that is eventually the, the story of whether they'll succeed or fail. But I think you, you go back to Manchester United. I, I read somewhere this summer they have 59 different product affiliations. I mean, apparently, you know, they've got an official everything. I assume they've got the official toothbrush. Uh, and that there's Cars a, and shoes and yes, so on. And, yeah. Yeah, they do. and there's a waiting list uh, to, to get associated with that team name, particularly in Asia. Um, and how do you how do you back away from this? Increasingly, I, I think people in sports media are beginning to think you can't. They're probably we've probably reached a point where there are maybe ten mega teams in world soccer, and that everybody else isn't even close. It's not, though, a matter of competitive imbalance. I mean, after all, Leicester City won the Premier League title uh, three years ago uh, against all the odds. But it didn't change the fact that uh, there are now six teams in England who completely dominate the sport. There are three teams in Germany who, who are in contention, but nobody really matches Bayern in terms of uh, financial power. Uh, and the ability to control the market. Uh, France, which has some great, great players, does not have the significant market power that the English, German, Spanish, and, and now coming back a bit, Italian clubs have. And so you ask yourself, well, what, what, is, the, what is the direction that various sports can go? We were talking in, in the hall uh, before we went on the air about uh, – what might happen in the National Hockey League in uh, the end of the 2019-2020 season when the union has the option of opting out of the current CBA. And everything I hear and, and read is that the players are bitterly unhappy with A, missing the Olympic Games, B, still having escrow withheld from their salary, uh, sometimes as high as 15%, and see the feeling that they've not been listened to in, in the last two negotiation cycles. Do we get really a fight between players and owners on a, on a kind of a different battlefield? Because they're both now very, very wealthy entities. Uh, it's no longer the, uh, the player coming and saying, I, I need a small raise. We're talking about players whose images, whose endorsements, whose potential income associated with hockey is substantially beyond what it's ever been before. Uh, are they going to really hold the owners to it in the next series of negotiations? 
I don't know. And there's rumbling in baseball, too, that uh, the baseball players are not happy with last year's lack of action in free agency, nor do they appear to be overjoyed with looking at teams that more and more have three or four very high salary players and fill the rest of the, the roster with relatively inexpensive players and move those inexpensive players before they can become expensive. Um, if you're Josh Donaldson or Manny Machado or Bryce Harper, maybe even uh, Cole Hamels here in, in Chicago, you're, you're going to get your money eventually in this uh, latest round of baseball free agency. But if last year was any indication, fringe players aren't going to be signed at all in some cases. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.